If you are a guest or you're a newcomer and you're just joining us, you actually have picked a really exciting time to join our church family, not only because we are studying Deuteronomy, but because we see God on the move. God is on the move in our community. There's a spiritual awakening happening on campuses, high school campuses across our city, and God is on the move here at River West. Amen? Amen. Amen. And as we're learning together, Deuteronomy is a book for people on the move. That's so much of the thrust of this book is actually joining with God, the story of God on the move, moving his people out of the wilderness into the promised land. It's why we're calling this study a people at the boundary, because in the same way that God led his people out of the safe plains of Moab and wandering in the wilderness into a land that he had prepared. We believe that God wants to lead us as a community in an unprecedented time to take hold of what he's calling us into. Now, before we dive into chapter four together today, here's a quick 30,000 foot overview of where we've been so far in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a book in the Old Testament that is divided into three of these speeches that Moses gave on the plains of Moab to the second generation of Israelites. And so to kids whose parents had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and passed away, now this next generation stood on the banks of the Jordan River with bright hopes that they would not repeat the same sins that their parents did that landed them in the wilderness, but actually listen and obey the Lord and step into Canaan, this land of Promise. And here's what's fascinating about these three speeches in Deuteronomy. They're actually structured in a past, present, future framework in Deuteronomy. So if you love charts or kind of breakdowns or anything like this, here is how Deuteronomy is divided. In chapters one through three, it's an address retelling Israel's past. God's faithful deliverance of his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, but also of Israel's rebellion and sin that eventually led them into the wilderness. In chapters 4 through 26, it's a present tense address, calling Israel to listen and obey the Lord and his commandments. And in chapter 27 through 34, the end of the book are future blessings and also warnings. Depending on how Israel will listen and obey, the book ends by saying, so choose for yourself before you are death and life, blessings and cursings, but choose life. That's the thrust of how this book ends. So in many ways, as Moses stood before this next generation and address them, to equip them and inspire them in this moment to move, to take action, to listen and obey, in many ways, it bears a lot in common with a commencement speech that you might hear at a graduation service. It's like a commencement speech to help the people Israel remember the past, God's faithfulness, to listen and obey, to seize this opportunity, to be faithful to Yahweh, to trust him with all their heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and to step into the future that God was preparing. 
So right now in the Kaufman House, we are a people at the boundary. We have an eighth grader that is preparing to graduate into high school. And we have a high schooler right now that's checking out colleges. He's a senior in high school. So we are actually experiencing a boundary crossing moment in our house. And it is an emotional whirlwind. Um, I am crying a lot, which is normal in our house. But it's a strange experience as our boys begin to cross over into this next chapter. Because at some point in the not-too-distant future, I'm going to be attending graduating services where someone will give a form of a commencement speech up there. And these days, who knows? That speech was probably written by chat GPT. Um, and like, like, let's be honest. Most commencement speeches that are given are not awesome. And do you remember your commencement speech in life? It's speeches that kind of go one, in, one ear and out the other. So imagine for a moment that you and I were on a committee and our job was to find an amazing commencement speaker. And so we reach out and unfortunately Taylor Swift and Matthew McConaughey are not available. So we're going down the list of people to invite to give this commencement address. You know who we would never consider? A 120 year old man that was a sheep herder and quite an introvert that was not good at public speaking. That was Moses. 120 years old on his resume, like herding sheep and actually not enjoying public speaking at all. That was his resume. You can literally check it out in Exodus chapter three. Moses directly tells God, I hate public speaking. I'm not good at this. And God responds to him and says, it doesn't matter because I'm going with you. But I'll give you Aaron. God agrees with Moses. He's like, you're not a good public speaker. And in a strange twist of irony, as you start reading through Deuteronomy, you realize that Moses not only got over his fear of public speaking, because he's doing a lot of it in Deuteronomy, he went on to become one of the most gifted preachers in history. So when God is with you, in spite of your inadequacies, the Lord can do some amazing things. Amen? Amen. As we jump back into chapter four in Deuteronomy, I believe that the Lord has brought us here today because this commencement speech from Moses is meant to move us from where we are today into a brighter future that the Lord is preparing. Amen? Amen. Chapter four, we're gonna dive in right at verse one this morning. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving to you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from all of your men who followed Baal Peor. But you shall hold fast to the Lord, your God. You're all alive today. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, 
For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear these statutes will, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children." How on the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, that they may learn from me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the 10 commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at the time to teach you statutes and rules that you may do them in the land that you are going over to possess. This is God's word. As we take a moment and allow this commencement speech from Moses to sink into our hearts, I want you to consider what comes to mind when you hear the word obedience. Obedience. For some, I imagine this word stirs up memories of being reprimanded by parents or teachers. I knew I was in trouble in my house when my parents pulled out my full name, Christopher James Kaufman. I knew that that was an obedience moment. But even if you were raised in a loving home or you made it through school without a detention slip, unlike me, I think most of us here today tend to consider obedience as something that is obligatory or burdensome burdensome, or just a buzzkill. In fact, many Christians today would come to a book like Deuteronomy that's filled with laws and commands and wrongly conclude that obeying God's commands only mattered under the Old Covenant, an Old Testament thing. However, as we'll see together from this passage and passages to come, obeying the Lord isn't a crushing burden, and it is certainly not only an Old Testament thing. In fact, as we'll see throughout these speeches that Moses gave to the people of Israel on the plains of Moab, obeying God is the very thing that unleashes his blessing on our personal lives and society at large. Folks, there is no greater blessing than being invited to obey the Lord our God. 
And yet for some of us, I know this idea, it runs against the grain of our experience. And so we may squint at this idea that obeying God is a blessing. In fact, perhaps some of you came out of fundamental or more legalistic church backgrounds that taught you that God only blesses people if they measure up to a certain morality code, a certain standard of purity that always feels a little bit out of reach. Or maybe you just feel like you are going through some version of your own wilderness season in life right now where God feels distant And if you were really being honest in raw moments, you secretly wonder, like the people Israel, if God has given up on you. Friends, wherever you are at in your life right now, I believe that God has brought you here today because he loves you and wants you to step out of the wilderness into a brighter hope and future that's made possible through Jesus. Amen? So if you're the note-taking type today, there's gonna be three things this passage is gonna reveal to us today about obedience. Three obedience lessons from this passage. And here's the first one. The first lesson we're gonna glean from this text is that faithfully obeying God brings life. It's actually not a crushing burden. It's a door through which God wants to offer life to us. And so even at verse one, pay attention and look at this. It says, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them, obey them that you may live. You see, when God delivered his people out of Egypt, he not only wanted to impart to them a promise of land flowing with milk and honey, he wanted to promise them life if they would only listen and obey his commands. Do these commands I'm giving to to you today that you may live. Now the word listen that appears in this passage is the word shema in Hebrew. And it means more than just hearing with your ears. It entails listening attentively and responding obediently, or in English, we would say, listen and obey, hear and do. And here's what's so interesting. Whereas in English, we actually have two separate words for listen and obey, in Hebrew, they just have one singular word that entails both listening and obeying, and it is the word shema. Shema, listen attentively. Shema, respond obediently. Same word. Now, as you read Deuteronomy, this word Shema, it shows up over and over again. 92 times in this book. By comparison, in in a book like Leviticus, the word shows up six times, 92 times in Deuteronomy, over and over again. Shema, Israel, listen and obey, as if that's the force and the main point that Moses is trying to impress upon his people. I love how one Jewish rabbi sums up the heart of this word Shema by saying, listen to this quote, this is so good. 
In Judaism, faith is a form of listening. The song creation sings to its creator and the message history delivers to those who strive to understand it. This is what Moses says time and time again in Deuteronomy. Stop looking, listen. Stop speaking, listen. Create a silence in the soul. Still the clamor of instinct, desire, fear, anger. Strive to listen to the still small voice beneath the noise. Then you will know that the universe is the work of one beyond the furthest star, yet closer to you than you are to yourself. And then you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. These final words, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all of your soul with all your might. It comes from the most famous passage in Deuteronomy, by far from Deuteronomy 6, from which comes the most famous prayer that devout Jews would pray every morning and evening and have done this for thousands of words, lifting up these words to the Lord, dedicating their life and their day and their evening by saying, Shema, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your might. The reason that this prayer is at the very center of the Jewish faith is that they know they will never experience the life that God has intended for them to experience personally and societally as a nation, unless they learn to listen and lovingly obey their Lord. And yet the Jewish people also learn the hard way that the opposite is also true. Just as listening and obeying God's commands brings life, ignoring and disobeying God's commands always brings death. By the way, this is why Moses brings up the story of Israel's sin and turning away from the Lord at this place, Baal Peor, in verse three of our text. So again, look at this. He illustrates and trying to warn Israel to listen and obey. Don't disobey like your parents did. And he says, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you the men who followed the Baal, which is just a generic word for God, and Peor, which is a mountain east of the Jordan River. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize and give you the Cliff Notes version of what happened at Baal Peor when Israel turned away from the Lord. You can read about it in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 25 later today. But here's the summary. There was a prophet, a wicked prophet named Balaam, who was hired by a wicked Moabite king named Balak to curse the people Israel. Because this king Balak was afraid. He was filled with fear because he saw that the God of Israel was with them and that this God was mighty and powerful. And so Balak hired Balaam 
He Venmoed him some money and said, I'm, I'm embellishing a little bit with this story, but he says, okay, I'm gonna Venmo you some money and I want you to curse the people Israel. And so Balaam, he says, okay, I'll go out. This is what I do professionally. I'm gonna call down curses on the people of Israel. And three times he tries to curse the people Israel. And this is actually a really funny story. Every single time he opens up his mouth, he's filled with the spirit of God and he ends up blessing them, which really ticks off Balak. He's like, dude, you are scoring touchdowns for the wrong team. This was not our agreement whatsoever. And so he turns up the pressure on Balaam uh, to the point that Balaam, even though he tries, he comes to the realization, I cannot curse the people that God has blessed. I can't do it, you can't do it. But here's what I'm thinking. He comes up with a plan and he tells Balak, if you could get these people to disobey their God's command, to turn their hearts away from him and worship our idols, our Baals, then they'll bring a curse upon themselves. And so that's what happens tragically at Baal Peor is that the Moabite king sends into the camp prostitutes from the temple. Temple prostitutes go into the camp and they bring their idols and their gods and they seduce the hearts of the people of Israel to turn away from worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, to worshiping these idols. And in one single day, 24,000 people died at Baal Peor. It's one of the most tragic moments in Israel's history. And the reason that Moses alludes to this story is he's trying to wake us up to the reality that that sinning against the Lord always inevitably leads to one place, one destination, death. And yet, Notice, because this is full of so much grace, what Moses says in verse four. He says, but you who've held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. And friends, that is more than a statement about physical vitality or the fact that you have a pulse It's a picture of someone who's alive head to toe, heart, mind, soul, and body. Somebody needs to hear this today. You may be facing hardships in your life right now and going through a wilderness season, but if you're holding fast to the Lord, your God, you're alive You're alive. That is the source of life. You who have held fast to the Lord through the wilderness of doubt during COVID. You who've fallen into sexual temptation like Israel did, but you've reached out for help. You parents right now who are at the end of your rope and there's days you feel like giving up, but you've clung to the Lord and you feel like an absolute failure. You who are single or widowed, feeling that you've been left behind in the wilderness and you're utterly alone. You may be in the wilderness, but you aren't alone. And if you hold fast to the Lord who loves you, he'll make you alive. That's not my promise. That is a promise from the God who created you, amen? Amen. Friends, there is a unique radiance of life 
that belongs to God's people who cling fast to him in hope and say, I may be going through hardships, but I'm gonna hold fast to the Lord. I'm gonna live faithfully and obediently. I'm gonna trust in him and with his help and grace, I'm gonna get through this. Folks, you're alive. You're alive, but more. Because faithful obedience and clinging to the Lord, it not only brings life, it bears witness to who our living God is. It bears witness. And you can see this so clearly in verses five to eight, that this is God's intention to actually show the world who he is through people that cling to him and obey him. So in verses five, we'll read again. It says, see, I've taught you these statutes and rules as the Lord, my God, commanded me that you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who, when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all of this law that I set before you today? This is a missional mandate. As God's people prepare to step across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, Canaan, it's important to remember that this was not just the land that was flowing with milk and honey and prosperity. It was also a culture that was steeped with immorality, with injustice, and pagan idolatry. And so part of God's purpose in sending his people into Canaan was not just to bless the nation of Israel, but to actually broadcast and bear witness to how different Israel's God is than all the other gods of the ancient Near East. And the way that Israel would show the world how unique and good and glorious and righteous and just their God is, is by loyally obeying the Lord's commands. Look at verse six again. It says, I want you to keep these commands and do them. That will be your wisdom and your understanding inside of the people who when they hear these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. But if you pay attention in the passage, that's not the only thing that the other nations marvel at. They marvel at the fact that the God of Israel is a God who draws near to his people, a God who hears prayers, and a God who is righteous in his laws and all of his ways. Folks, you have to understand this. The idea that a God like this would desire a personal, intimate relationship with people was so far out of the box of near, of near Eastern religious frameworks. This was unheard of. For them, the gods that were worshipped in Canaan and Moabite culture that were these distant deities who oversaw different aspects of creation, almost as, as like mid-level managers overseeing the sun and the moon cycles, sex and fertility and crops and war and politics. 
But unlike the gods of Israel, these gods didn't care one lick about helping humanity or hearing prayer. They were simply angry, unknown deities that needed to constantly be appeased through ritualistic sacrifices. Case in point, I want you to like listen to a prayer that was preserved from 7th century BC that's today in a museum in Nazareth, and it's entitled, A Prayer to Any God. Here's the words of a prayer that would have been offered to one of the idols in the land of Canaan. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the God who has turned away from me in anger be reconciled. I do not know the wrong I have done. I do not know what sin I have committed. This is a very bleak window into what it would have been like to pray to and worship the unknown gods that other nations bowed down to. But folks, here's the incredible news. The God of the Bible is not like that. He's not a God who is unknown. And in his righteous decrees, he, he graciously reveals his character and his will to his people. He's the God who wants to be known and has made a way to be known. That's why I'm sure you've noticed how many times in this passage we're told, hold fast to God's revealed word. Hold fast to it, preserve it. Don't mess with God's word. Don't add to it and don't take away from it. And also, whatever you do, Pass it on to the next generation. Make these words breathed and revealed known to your children and to your children's children. Folks, that's why we're so radically committed as a church to center everything around God's revealed supernatural word here at River West. From our student ministry to River West kids downstairs, to our community groups, classes, and Bible studies, to our church's outreach as we bear witness to who our God is. There's no other book on the face of the earth that contains God-breathed words that are living and active and can change people's lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. But if the world's going to see how different our God is, then in every generation, it takes a group of people that not only listen, but live these words out. Because a church that is obsessed with the same altars that our world is, obsessed with wealth and power and self-idolatry, has nothing to say to a world that worships at those same altars. If we are bad news in those sort of ways, we have no good news to share. The world will never see how great and glorious Jesus is unless we as a people with the Holy Spirit's help listen and obey the way of Jesus in our world. But that brings us to a really big problem that Moses actually was utterly convinced of and that we know through our own experience. None of us can faithfully obey God's commands. You can't do it, I can't do it. Moses couldn't do it. 
That was clear from the very moment that God gave Moses the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai. And our passage retells this moment. Sinai is referred to as Horeb, a thick darkness settled over the mountain and it was set ablaze with the glory of God and a voice, not a form, like the other idols of the world, world, a God who spoke through that mountain that was ablaze with fire, spoke to his people. And what's interesting is when Moses went up to hear this God that wanted to speak, do you remember what the people of Israel said to Moses as he prepared to hike up the mountain and receive the 10 commandments? The people of Israel's told, Israel told Moses, you go and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will shema. We will hear it and do it. But as we all know, that enthusiasm to listen and obey the Lord, it didn't last very long. Because before Moses can even come down the mountain, the people of Israel had actually created a golden calf and were having a rave party and were bowing down to it. Their hearts had gone astray. So even when the people of Israel committed with their words and said, whatever the Lord our God tells us to do, we'll be careful to listen and obey. Do you remember how God responds to the people of Israel? It's in chapter five. This is incredible. He tells Moses, oh, that my people had such a heart to listen and obey my commands. Oh, that they had such a heart. The Lord knows that the people of Israel didn't have a heart that was capable of listening and obeying. And you know what? Moses knew that he didn't have a heart either. And that's why God's loving intent in giving the law was to actually lead us to a point where we come to the end of ourselves and we cry out for a savior, for a Messiah. Friends, please hear this good news. Apart from Jesus Christ, no one faithfully obeys. None. All of us have fallen short. But here's the incredible loving intent of the law. The law was given to bring you to that realization as quickly as possible so that you would turn your heart to the Lord and ask for mercy and for grace and for life. Paul, unpacking this holy mystery and preaching it to a Greco-Roman culture and a church following the way of Jesus in the first century, wrote these words in Romans chapter three that we preached ages ago in this place, but they contained so much grace and hope. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets and the book of Deuteronomy bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. My friends, there has only been one person in history 
that faithfully loved the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved others. And it's not you and I, and it's not Moses. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. He was falsely condemned and accused as a lawbreaker, but he committed no sin and no wrong. And he hung on a Roman cross so that you and I, not through obeying, but of entrusting ourselves and clinging to him may have life and have it abundantly. More than you can ask or imagine or conceive, God wants to give you his life, his life. And he gave his life so that you might have life. Don't settle for the lame life offers of the wilderness. Nothing that the world of wilderness can offer you compares to the life that Jesus is extending to us today. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to respond today by coming to the table. As we come to the table today, if you haven't come to a place in your life where you've entrusted your life to Jesus, in a moment, you'll have an opportunity to say a very, very simple prayer of faith where you can put your life in the hands of a savior who laid down his life on a Roman cross so that you might have life and have it abundantly. Let's bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord who's with us today. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for these words that are alive, for being a God who wants to be known and is made away through Jesus. Father, may you turn our hearts away from the things that have kept us in wilderness. And may we understand by your grace this morning that to let go of control and to obey and trust you is the doorway through which life will flow into our life. If you're here today and you want to experience life through Jesus, you can simply pray right now and tell the Lord, Lord, I believe what I'm hearing. I need your life. Thank you for laying down your life for me. Receive the gift of life. I turn away from wilderness of my own control and sin. Teach me to trust you, to listen and obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.